Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore the story of the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner, Chinese writer and imprisoned political reform advocate Liu Xiaobo. Liu Xiaobo is serving 11 years in a Chinese prison for subversion, advocating free speech and democracy there. We talk with two people who have had close contact with Xiaobo without having ever met him in person fellow writer, human rights and literary freedom advocate Tian Chi Liao. He is tolerant and he is rational and he has passion and feeling. And we talk with Jeffrey Young, the man who's translating to English Xiaobo's June 4th elegies, which recall his witnessing the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. I mean, trying to, again, put yourself in his shoes where he's in prison here and writing this. It's almost beyond comprehension, really, I mean, what he's writing about. All today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we put the spotlight on a man who came to the entire world's attention in the fall of 2010. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded today to a man who will not be able to accept it in person. That's because Liu Xiaobo is serving 11 years in a Chinese prison for subversion, advocating free speech and democracy there. He is perhaps China's best-known dissident. The Norwegian Nobel Committee, by the way, cited his long and nonviolent struggle for fundamental human rights. The Chinese government criticized the award, saying it runs completely counter to the principles of the prize. NBC's coverage of the announcement that Chinese professor and human rights advocate Liu Xiaobo had won the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize. And true to NBC anchor Brian Williams' prediction, Xiaobo was not able to attend the awards ceremony in December of that year in Oslo. In a solemn Oslo ceremony, this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner was celebrated with an empty chair. Instead, Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo is in this Chinese prison, serving 11 years for subversion, for promoting democracy. His wife's under house arrest in this apartment complex, silenced along with dozens of associates. The crackdown has had one simple objective, to prevent anybody, his wife here, or other family, friends or supporters, from getting to Oslo to receive the prize on his behalf. The controversy surrounding this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner is growing. The government has blacked out international broadcasts about the Peace Prize and blocked websites, even some references this evening to empty chairs. The authorities have angrily condemned the award and called the Nobel jury anti-China clowns. NBC's Ian Williams. Although the world's attention was drawn to the basic story of Liu Jiabo around the Peace Prize announcement, there's much more to explore, which we'll do today on Peace Talks Radio, as we later talk with poet Jeffrey Yang, who's translating into English Liu Jiabo's essays called The June Fourth Elegies. But first, a conversation with another Chinese writer, who, while never having met Liu Jiabo in person, has had many conversations and email exchanges with the Chinese professor in between his many imprisonments by the Chinese government. Tianqi Liao of the Independent Pen Center will tell us about Jiabo's philosophy, writings, and his historic role in the Tiananmen Square turmoil of 1989 in China. 
She's at her home in Cologne, Germany. Tianxi Liao, welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. Tell us how you do know Yo Jiabo. Uh, he worked for our website uh, since 2002. Uh, I worked in Washington, D.C. We have a Chinese website. We just work as a, a journal, and Liu Xiaobo is one of our authors. But I have read his articles and books many years ago, so I'm familiar with his writings. And uh, since that time, I actually, I talk to him on the phone once in a week. Uh, he is our regular uh, contributor. How would you describe the role his voice uh, and his writing played in the years leading up to the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989? Liu Xiaobo has started his writing since... Uh, late 70s and actually in the uh, early 80s. He uh, studied Chinese literature in Jilin Dashue and later in Beijing Normal University from 1982 to 84. Afterwards, he uh, worked as lecturer. He is a very sharp observer of the happenings in the society, and he has his very profound ideas about all the happenings uh, in China. You know that Deng Xiaoping has started the reform politics in the early 80s, and lots of problems, which were the consequences of this very radical ideological dogmatism of communism. So lots of problems happens after two decades of uh, this uh, policy. And Liu Xiaobo observed all these problems and write down his th thoughts. And uh, lots of his article has raised uh, large attention among young people especially among the intellectuals. So I think this is a prelude to the happenings in 89, if you will. Right. I think it would be useful to recap for our listeners some of the key history, particularly around the Tiananmen Square protests. So Liu Xiaobo was out of the country in 1989, but he returned in April just weeks before the protests and the killings there. And now at that time, was he drawn back by the turmoil, uh, sort of sensing its uh, importance? Yes, I think he has a sense of all the important happenings. The, the whole movement started in April, and it develops to to a really mass uh, protest action in in May. And Liu Xiaobo uh, went back to China because he wanted to be part of it. And uh, as we all know, he, is a, he, he used to be a teacher in the university, and he is a very good speaker. And so he went back to uh, Beijing, and really played an active role mm. in the whole movement. Right, and he was in his uh, early 30s at the time. Let's remind our listeners of some of the dramatic turns that he was actually involved with 
in those days uh, before the June 4th massacre in Tiananmen Square. Yes. He participated in a hunger strike, didn't he? Yes. He participated uh, in the hunger s- strike of these so-called four gentlemen uh, together with uh, Zhou Duo, is another young teacher in the university, and the singer Hou Dejian from Taiwan, and another editor with the name Gao Xin. And what was the purpose of the strike? Was it to win confidence from the student protesters, or tell me more about that? Yes. These four young men started their hunger strike on June 2nd, and they have uh, drafted uh, an announcement to tell people the reason why they started a hunger strike. They named four reasons. First of all, they said, we have no enemies. I mention this because, uh, you know, 20 years later, uh, uh, Liu Xiaobo was sentenced now to 11 years, and he has also written another statement. It's also called, I have no enemies. So at that time, this four young men has written in one document, and the first point is that we have no enemies. And second, we want to reflect, we want to show our responsibilities as a Chinese citizen. And then the third point they mentioned is that we do not go after the death. We go after the true life. We are looking for a true life in China. So they want to show with this um, statement that they are not uh, against the government or against the army, but they just want to show their free will. They want China has its change, change against all the unfair and wrong things what happened in the recent years. The fourth point is they mentioned uh, that we are all citizens. With this point, I think they want to to um, just remind the government this is our basic rights. Mm-hmm. It's not written, but they just mention we are citizens. They don't want to have direct confrontation with the government or with the, or with the authority but they want to show their free will. Right. It doesn't sound much like a militant uprising of the citizenry, but it uh, it sounds very simply uh, that they want their voice heard. Yes, it is. 20 years ago, um, that was end of 80s. The people in China, they are still under the shock of the Cultural Revolution, and they are still totally scared uh, from the authority. Nobody dares to really uh, criticize openly the authority. If they do the protest, they just say, well, some corrupt uh, officers, this and that, but they never really directly attack the, the Chinese Communist Party. This is an untouchable topic. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the next chapter in that story. Of course, things go horribly badly in Tiananmen Square, uh, but Liu Xiaobo is instrumental in helping to keep it from getting much, much worse. 
in arranging for the peaceful escape of some of the students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. These four young men, they started their hunger strike on June 2nd. Several hours later, the situation becomes really severe in uh, on the Tiananmen Square, and he and also the other student leaders started uh, to uh, try to negotiate with the authority. But they don't have the full authority because lots of students, they, they are tired and they are, they are so excited. They just don't follow any uh, leader's words. Well, it was just so much chaos, I can only imagine. It's just lots of chaos, so nobody is really have the authority to tell the people to calm down. We have to, to act collectively. Let's do it this and that way so that we can have more, a little bit more safety or we can get a certain guarantee from the authority that we can retreat. And so nobody can speak to the, to, can persuade the, the student. So if, they negotiate with the authority. The, the soldiers, the, the officers don't believe them. And if they talk to the students, the students don't believe them that they can persuade the authority. So it was a very difficult role for him to play. So he was arrested and put in prison, um, expelled from his university. His publications were banned. He was convicted of crimes against the state, but released in 1991, and he was acknowledged for his actions to help limit the bloodshed there at Tiananmen Square. And, and I guess he wrote and traveled for four years before being arrested yet again. So he was again in and out of prison, constantly under surveillance in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Can you describe some of what he was writing during this time that was important? Yes, uh, he after he was released uh, from the prison in 1991, he uh, actually traveled to Australia in 93 and also in the United States. Actually, he has the chance to stay in stay abroad and uh, continue his career as a scholar or as a literary critic. But he decided to go back to China, and he believes that uh, this is a place where he belongs to. And if he has the right to speak out or to write something, to criticize something or to, to describe something, he has to be in this country and in this, get involved in the, the society. Right. Otherwise, he does not have the right to say this and to criticize that. So he decided to go back to China. And in, in during th those years, uh, which you mentioned from 91 to 96, till he was arrested again, he has written lots of articles. For instance, um, uh, for the sixth anniversary of, of the massacre, that was 1995, he has uh, written an article and asked the government to re-evaluate the, the movement, the Tiananmen movement. And because of those articles, he was arrested again. Right, because 
the government wants this event to slip into obscurity, and it sounds like Liu Xiaobo's, one of his main goals is to make sure that it doesn't. Yeah. Liu Xiaobo has written five poems, very long poems, to commemoration of June 4th. Altogether, he has written five very long poems just to express his everlasting memory of this happiness on Tiananmen Square. So that is exactly what the government doesn't want. Yeah. We'll hear more later from Chinese writer and human rights activist Tianqi Liao speaking to us about 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo. But when we return, we will hear a translated excerpt of Xiaobo's aforementioned June 4th elegies when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. And today we are profiling the 2010 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, Chinese professor Liu Xiaobo, whose written critiques of the Chinese Communist government have landed him in prison many times. That's the voice of Liu Xiaobo during a visit to Australia just before his 2009 arrest and imprisonment by the Chinese government. He was interviewed by reporter Liz Jackson for an Australian documentary program. But realistically, how many people in the huge population that China has know enough or care enough to speak out publicly for human rights and democracy now? Do you ever feel like that you're just a small minority that the government can afford to just contain or ignore? Liu Jiabo is saying, well, it's hard to say. In my case, I haven't stopped criticizing the government from the time I got out of prison in 1999 until now, which makes nine years. People keep saying, Jiabo, you'll be back inside soon, you'll be back inside soon. But it hasn't happened yet, has it? I think the government is under increasing pressure from ordinary people. If they arrest and sentence someone, they have to take into account the political cost, particularly with high-profile people. It's not true that the government can simply ignore us, that they don't care what we do. If they didn't care, then they would not go to such lengths to monitor and control us. I also sense that the community which empathizes with us, supports us, and is prepared to speak out for us is growing. Every year the numbers are increasing. My optimism about China is not something I judge by what the authorities are doing, but by what the growing power of ordinary people are doing. 
But we cannot expect things to change overnight in China. I think it's a very slow process. Within your lifetime? Well, maybe not, despite all my efforts for so long. As Tianqi Liao mentioned earlier, since his participation in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, Liu Xiaobo has written regularly to mark the anniversary of the massacre on June 4, 1989, of many hundreds of protesters by Chinese troops. Grey Wolf Press will release an English translation of those long poems, the June 4 elegies, in 2012. Poet and literary editor Jeffrey Young is working on those translations now, and he joins us from the offices of New Directions Publishers in New York. Welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. It's nice to uh, be here. And Jeffrey, when did you first encounter personally the writings of Liu Jiabo? Um, it was through Penn, uh, Penn uh, the Penn Foundation. What is the Penn Foundation? Oh, they're a literary organization, an international literary organization, and they have their main offices in New York, and they run um, various programs, uh, and one of the programs that they do run is a Freedom to Write program. And since his, his most recent trial and then imprisonment, they've been in close touch with his wife, at least until she was put under house arrest and not unable to talk to anybody. It was through them, it was uh, two summers ago, they, the managing editor uh, of their literary magazine, they uh, asked me if I wanted to translate some of his poems. And they sent me uh, some poems. So I read them, and I said I would translate a few for them, which I did. Um, at, up to that point, I had known who he was, but I had never read anything of his. Yeah, so can you remember then, I guess, what you're describing is sitting at the computer uh, and opening up uh, these uh, documents. What struck you about them initially when you first laid eyes on them and uh, started to experience him that way? Well, initially... Um, it was they were they're very intense personal poems each one was in some way dedicated to his wife Liu Xia but also they were all written while he was in prison i'm trying to remember exactly when it was in the 90s and so these poems came directly from his wife so that was kind of the first thing the very kind of personal intense emotional level, but also just the bleakness, but also the, he, he wasn't, it, there was a, a hope, you know, in these poems as well, um, and not overtly political in any way. They were more kind of, um, I mean, a lot of these poems that I've been translating now, it, it's about recovering memory, not forgetting, you know, and so it was a lot of that too involved. Well, you've begun work on this bilingual edition of the June 4th Elegies, which is this collection written and inspired by the June 4th, 1989 massacre of hundreds of protesters by Chinese soldiers. Right. Have you begun work on those? Yes, I have. I've, I've, I've have probably about a third of the book done. The way the book's structured is that um, each year after... 89, around the time of Tiananmen, he has sat down to write a poem or a series of poems eulogizing or, or um, in memorial to the time during Tiananmen. And 
it's this act again of remembrance. And so each year for 20 years, he's done this. So one of the things that has been amazing to see is just basically in Leo's own words, what he's thinking, what he, you know, went through and, and his whole kind of world outlook, his aesthetic outlook. Well, I'm imagining that you must have a feeling of um, playing an important role in introducing this work to an English-speaking audience. As you say, there hasn't been much in translation. And just to use the United States as an example, I mean, I think there was some intrigue about the announcement of his winning the Nobel Prize and recognizing that he was not free to accept it. Right. But after that, you know, it's like, okay, he was a freedom worker in China, a poet, and they shrug the shoulders and say, well, that's the last I'll have to think about Leo Jabot. <laughs> you know, what a shame. But here's an opportunity for them to really uh, understand who he was and his career as a writer. You know, hopefully the idea of, of a prize like this is that um, that we're all kind of accountable here on this earth, uh, countries, individuals. Of course, each nation has its own set of problems and oppressions to a certain degree, but um, that that the Chinese government, I mean, they, if the 21st century is theirs, uh, like everybody is saying, is like they're acting, they, they can't, they, they're, they're, they can't really act like this. If they want to survive, you know, as, as a, as a nation and stuff uh, today. Uh, and so I think when a prize like this, in the long run, it could be a more positive thing, uh, especially as his work becomes, you know, more known. I don't think even in China, if people want to read his work online, they can. But hopefully down the line, his books will be available there. And I think it will be a more positive thing of, of changing things because uh, something, you know, has to change in that respect there. Uh, Jeffrey Young, uh, what do you think... Liu Jabot's writing has to offer to the curious who would like to explore his work in terms of peace messages that they could apply to their own lives. Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely. He's uh, he, he's lived an extraordinary life. I mean, he, um, so it's it's also one of the life and the work. And so what he's writing in his poems about memory and remembering this time and and how relevant it is today and how relevant memory is for us to progress as people you know that's already that's uh, you know an amazing message to 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 see through his life and his work but also all that he's been through he he's he's so much in different ways emphasizes the that he bears i mean he bears no hate he, the, the 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 famous speech he gave or the the words he he spoke at his trial um i have no enemies you know is basically everything that he's been through he doesn't harbor any hatred he understands kind of a bigger picture of how things work and how the way power structure works and that hatred is one thing that is needs to be overcome if we're even going to be talking about peace there is no hatred towards the government, towards China. I mean, that is kind of one of the amazing things, and I think that people 
I don't know, or at least in the media, it kind of gets overlooked, is that, you know, he, of course, loves his country, and he loves, you know, he stayed there. He did not leave, like, you know, many people did, um, understandably, um, but he decided to stay there. And so I think that's one of the strongest kind of things that I'm seeing as I'm going through that, that, that keeps coming up in different ways, you know. Well, Jeffrey Young, as we move toward conclusion, could you read some excerpts from the June 4th elegies that you find especially compelling? Sure. Um, so this is a um, series of poems from June 4th elegies. It's from it's the book Liu Xiaobo dedicates to the mothers of Tiananmen and for those who can remember. The mothers of Tiananmen are an activist group um, that are still present for those uh, family who lost loved ones during Tiananmen. It's the first section, first section called Experiencing Death. He wrote it when he was in Qingcheng Prison. It's dated June 1990. And each section of this book, he kind of gives as an anniversary offering of June 4th. So this is the first anniversary offering. Monument, waves of weeping, marble grain fused with blood-stained veins, Belief in youth, beaten beneath the tank's rust-chain tracks. Ancient story of the East, leaks out new hope unexpectedly. The glorious crowds have little by little disappeared, like a river that slowly, steadily dries away. Landscape on both shores transformed to stone. Every throat has been strangled by fear. Every trembling has traced the dissipated nighter smoke. Only the executioner's steel hood glints, luminous glints. Two. I cannot recognize the flag anymore. The flag, like an unknowing child, flung upon mother's corpse, returns home wailing. I cannot tell day from night anymore. Time's been petrified by gunshots, as if a paralytic without memory. Gun's barrel braces my lower back. I've discarded my passport and identity card. In the bayonet and flame dawn, that once familiar world cannot find a handful of dirt to bury itself in. Red-bared heart collides with iron and steel. No water, no greenness of earth. Duties ravaged sunlight. Three. They wait and wait, wait for time to invent an exquisite lie, wait for the transformation of the bestial hour. Indeed, wait until fingers transform to sharpened claws, eyes transform to a gun's mouth, feet transform to chained tracks, air transforms to a command. It arrives, at last it arrives, the five thousand year awaited command. Open fire kill people, kill people, open fire, peaceful petition, hands unarmed, an old man's cane, a child's torn jacket, the executioner will never be swayed, eyes burnt to red, gun barrels shot to red, hands dyed red, a bullet, a mud-thick secret spills out, a crime, a kind of heroic feat, how relaxing, Death's arrival. How easy 
bestial desires are satisfied. Young soldiers, recently clothed in uniform, still haven't felt the drunkenness of a girl's kiss, but now, in an instant, experience the bloodthirsty pleasure of murder, their youth's beginnings. They who cannot see the blood-soaked dress, cannot hear the struggle's scream, through steel helmets cannot perceive life's fragility. They aren't aware of the fatuous old man who's transforming the ancient capital into another zone of Auschwitz. Brutality, iniquity, rise up from the earth like the splendor of a pyramid, while life crumbles into the abyss, where even the faintest echo cannot be heard. The massacre has engraved a nation's tradition, years, months, as remote as an abandoned language that enacts a final farewell. And this is the last section, four. I had imagined being there beneath sunlight with the procession of martyrs, using just the one thin bone to uphold the true conviction. And yet, the heavenly void will not plate the sacrificed in gold. A pack of wolves, well-fed, full of corpses, celebrate in the warm noon air a flood with joy. Far away place, I've exiled my life to this place without sun to flee the era of Christ's birth. I cannot face the blinding vision on the cross. From a wisp of smoke to a little heap of ash, I've drained the drink of the martyrs, sent springs about to break into the brocade brilliance of myriad flowers. Deep in the night, empty road, I'm biking home. I stop at a cigarette stand. A car follows me, crashes over my bicycle. Some enormous brute sees me. I'm handcuffed, eyes covered, mouth gagged, thrown into a prison van heading nowhere. A blink, a trembling instant passes to a flash of awareness. I'm still alive. On central television news, my name's changed to Arrested Black Hand, though those nameless white bones of the dead still stand in the forgetting. I lift up, high up, the self-invented lie, tell everyone how I've experienced death, so that Black Hand becomes a hero's medal of honor. Even if I know death's a mysterious unknown, being alive there's no way to experience death, and once dead cannot experience death again, yet I'm still hovering within death, a hovering and drowning, countless nights behind iron-barred windows, and the graves beneath starlight have exposed my nightmares. Besides a lie, I own nothing. So that's the first section of the book. <laughs> well, Jeffrey Young, as a poet yourself, what impresses you most about the work you just read? I mean, trying to, again, put yourself in his shoes where he's in prison here and writing this. It's almost beyond comprehension, really. I mean, what he's writing about. And so there, there is this really sense of personal guilt, too, for him, I think, that he's expressing here. There is, of course, anger, too, but, you know, again, I don't see the hatred that so easily can, you know, can fall into. And I don't know 
his personal religious beliefs, but that idea of redemption is there and forgiveness and forgiveness as needing a necessary part of progressing as a person, whatever you believe. Well, is there anything else that uh, I didn't ask you about that as you prepared for this conversation that you thought you wanted to say about your experience or Liu Jabo's work? There is one thing specifically towards your program. I mean, I could add a little bit uh, of which relates to what we just talked about um, in that poem. I mean that, and then your program, like peace, peace, uh, the the word peace, and and the 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 root of it being, uh, I think, in Sanskrit, pack, as in um, to bind, to bind, uh, also meaning. Um, a payment, a payment of a debt that's owed. And I think a lot of what, of, of the peace that is coming through this and what Leo Chabot is writing about is paying a debt, a necessary payment towards these people who lost their lives in Tiananmen and also what that movement stood for, you know, and not forgetting that. So that's kind of what I wanted to add to that. Jeffrey Young is a poet and literary editor who is creating a translation of the June 4th Elegies, written by 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo, a Chinese teacher and poet who has been imprisoned since 2009 for his calls for reform in the Chinese government. He was unable to attend the Peace Prize ceremony himself. We'll have more about Liu Xiaobo's story with writer and literary freedom advocate Tianqi Liao when we return on Peace Talks Radio, right after this. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have scores of our programs archived online at peacetalksradio.com. And today we're spotlighting the life and writings of 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner, Chinese writer and imprisoned government reform advocate, Liu Xiaobo. We couldn't talk with Xiaobo ourselves because he's serving a lengthy prison sentence in China for his outspoken calls for basic freedoms for the Chinese people. We resume our conversation now with Chinese writer Tianqin Liao, who, as we said earlier, never met Liu Xiaobo in person, but had many conversations and email exchanges with him in between his many imprisonments by the Chinese government. Tianqi Liao of the Independent Pen Center has been speaking to us from her home in Cologne, Germany. Tianqi Liao, is it fair to say that Liu Xiaobo has been a wholesale advocate for Western-style democracy, elections, and free markets in his writings? I think so. Liu Xiaobo... In his young days, uh, I mean, when he was really very young, in his 20s, 
he, uh, of course, he was very much influenced by Marxism and so on, and he loves uh, Nietzsche, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Saint Augustine, and so on. Uh, but later, he uh, becomes more mature, and he, and he also he he also admires. Um, very pragmatic uh, politicians and political thinkers. For instance, Martin Luther King is one of his heroes. And he also is an admirer of uh, uh, George Bush and uh, Tony Blair and so on. So Liu Xiaobo is convinced that the American and the British uh, political system is a better, better one than the others. All these are for for him a model which uh, probably uh, China can adapt a system which uh, is good for China, and one of his dream is uh, that every Chinese citizen can enjoy the rights of election. He knows that the. Capitalism is not the best system, but free market and free trade is something that he really high valued. I can only say that since there is no other model for 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 China, he thinks capitalism or democratic system is the better one. Mm-hmm. And yet,、uh, I would say that some admirers of Dr. Martin Luther King, for example,、uh, would probably have cause to pause around the support that Liu Xiaobo and an admiration that he had, had for Tony Blair or George Bush. He's he's been on the record saying that U.S. wars he believes were mostly ethically defensible and that they opposed dictatorships and advanced human rights.、Mm-hmm. I think some admirers of King would have a little bit of trouble with. That stance of Liu Xiaobo.、Um, do these writings, you know, make him any less of a champion of nonviolence? In in your view?、Um, no, actually, personally, I don't have the problem. But I think you have to understand that Liu Xiaobo got all his information from the Chinese media. I mean, not from the Chinese media inside China. But the overseas Chinese media, and the overseas Chinese media, are eighty to ninety percent are、uh, how shall I say pro-American and British, especially after the first Gulf War and after nine eleven.、Mm-hmm. So the opinion in the、uh, overseas Chinese media are mostly on the side. Of George Bush, so as the European, the European country criticized George Bush's、uh, Iraq politics, the Chinese media in overseas didn't follow the European opinion. They all thought that what American is American government is doing is right. Maybe with a wish. That a dictator can be removed in Iraq, then probably a dictatorship 
in Asian country, for instance, in China, can be removed too. I mean, this is a wishful thinking. So I don't think we can blame Liu Xiaobo for his stance to uh, uh, Americans' Iraq War.、Um, But what you're saying it's interesting because you know he's made a choice to continue to return to China instead of perhaps traveling the world and maybe getting access to、uh, a broader point of view about international politics, and so. The importance of his being in China also maybe leaves him short on a broader view of the wars in the Middle East of of all kinds.、Uh, I agree with you. One of Liu Xiaobo's problem is, although he he read lots of things, lots of books on about philosophy, political th-、uh, thoughts, and、uh, even about economy, he he reads Hayek and so on, but he does not read. English or not good enough that he feels comfortable that he likes to read an English book. Mostly he reads the translations. So his choice of knowledge is,、uh, if if you want, the secondhand、uh, knowledge. And、uh, I think I this is not a critic, but this is just to to. To let people understand why sometimes he's,、uh, as you mentioned, that he sometimes he, he's a, a little bit lack of the the, the wides of view. It is because of the limitation of his language ability. Yeah. We're talking to Tianqi Liao, who's a Chinese writer, editor, translator, human rights activist. She's with the Independent Chinese Pen Center as well. It seems important that we should talk about the lead up to his most current arrest. In 2008, he participates in what's known as Charter 08. Can you tell us what that was about? Yes, Liu Xiaobo was one of the main initiator of、uh, Charter 08.、Uh, as we all know, this is modeled after the Charter 77, which has played. Really important role in the seventies when Eastern European、uh, countries are were still、uh, under the the communist regimes. When he and his friends drafted this uh, document uh, in November two thousand eight, he sent it out to lots of people. Not only inside China, but also outside China, and in this document, he explained in the first part several central terminologies such as freedom, such as human rights, such as、uh, constitution, and so on. And in the second part, they mentioned nineteen、uh, twenty points that suggestions for the government what to do. For instance, in the field of education, in the field of taxation, in the field of industry, and so on. This is a very mild and rational document.、Uh, for lots of people, this is too mild. Lots of people want to have more radical, more、uh, strong change, quicker change in China, but.、Uh, I think most of the the co-signers 
even if they don't agree with the total text, they give their signatures to support this document because they understand why、uh, this very mild and rational tone has been used. Because nowadays,、uh, actually, you can, to a certain extent,、uh, criticize the government, but you should not. Belong to a, an organization. You, you can be five、uh, hundred individuals, but you should not organized uh, uh, to be organized as a group. So people give their、uh, signatures to support this document, just to express their wish of a change. And I think in the contemporary. Time. This is one. This is and will be、uh, one of the most important document, which reflects the wish and the dreams of all the Chinese who want to have a better society, a better political system,、uh, more、uh, uh, rule of law, and、uh, a fair.、Uh, Environment and a better environment. This reflects really the wish of most of the Chinese.、Mm-hmm. Well, then, despite what you describe as a mild and rational tone of this document that he co-signs, it is, of course, what ultimately led to the start of his current prison term, which is eleven years to last until twenty twenty. Let me read part of his statement in court, December twenty third, two thousand nine, which you referred to earlier as well. He said, "I have no enemies and no hatred. None of the police who have monitored, arrested, and interrogated me, the prosecutors who prosecuted me, or the judges who sentenced me are my enemies. While I'm unable to accept your surveillance, arrest, prosecution, or sentencing, I respect your professions and personalities, including those who act for the prosecution at present. I was aware of your respect and sincerity in your interrogation of me on December third. For hatred is corrosive of a person's wisdom and conscience. The mentality of enmity can poison a nation's spirit, instigate brutal life and death struggles. Destroy a society's tolerance and humanity, and block a nation's progress to freedom and democracy. I hope, therefore, to be able to transcend my personal vicissitudes in understanding the development of the state and changes in society, to counter the hostility of the regime with the best of intentions, and diffuse hate with love. I do not feel guilty for following my constitutional right to freedom of expression, for fulfilling my social responsibility as a Chinese citizen. Even if accused of it, I would have no complaints. That's Liu Jiabo's statement in Chinese court, December twenty-third, two thousand nine, and this statement was read at the two thousand ten Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, which he was, of course, unable to attend. Tianqi Liao, can you envision a way that he might find early release?、Uh, what would have to happen, in your view, for him to be out of prison before twenty twenty? Well. This is really very difficult to say. If he has won the Nobel Prize, maybe five years ago or eight years ago,、uh, his chance to be released earlier is very great. It's very large. But、uh, we all notice that 
how the Chinese government react to uh, to the Nobel Prize this time, and uh, this really hard and shameless reaction of the state power to uh, one single person is just unacceptable. But this government just behave as it it is. It shows its true face. It show its its true face not only to Liu Xiaobo, but to the whole world, also to the American people, to their friends, to their enemy, or they thought their enemy. All the same, they just want to show one thing: power. And I have to to tell you, I really feel quite really. Powerless as a powerless person, I wish that、uh, I used to thought <clears throat> in even even in November, I thought maybe after the 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 award ceremony in Oslo, the government will become a little bit well. Somehow they don't feel so much openly offended or to lose their face, and maybe. They will show some gestures, but till now we heard nothing, not only from Liu Xiaobo, but not even from his wife Liu Xia. We know nothing. I don't dare to say anything. My secret hope is that after two or three years, when everything comes down, the government probably will. Give him a medical parole or something like that, but this is just a wishful thinking. I don't dare to say anything, but、um, I want say maybe to say one thing. Even Liu Xiaobo has to be in prison for to serve the full sentence, eleven years. I think he will accept that, and、uh, with peace. And with pride,、um, he got what he deserves—the high honor—and、uh, he knows that he has to pay the price too. That's all what what I can say. Right. It sounds to me like he shares. We talked about the difference between him and the Dalai Lama, but it sounds to me like he shares the long view that the Dalai Lama always talks of. In terms of what needs to happen now for change to come, maybe in a long time down the road, and、uh, it sounds like that's what Liu Jiabo accepts about his role in in this process. Yes, do you know、um, uh, Liu Xiaobo has written one article shortly before, maybe four weeks before he was arrested. That was after the American election. When Obama becomes the president, three fourths of the article was about Obama's election, about the、uh, the supreme system in the United States, the, about the election and this and that, and how wonderful Obama becomes the president as a colored person, as a young person, energetic person, and so on. Then. The last part of the article was about Dalai Lama, and Liu Xiaobo said the conflict between Chinese Han Chinese 
and Tibet can only be solved if Dalai Lama, if we Chinese have the big heart to accept Dalai Lama as our president, as president of the People's Republic of China, then this、uh, conflict between the nationality can be solved in a peaceful, rational, elegant way. And I think this is a very wonderful article. It shows really、uh, what kind of、uh, character Liu Xiaobo has. This paragraph in, the, in in such an article, I think, is is really just wonderful, and just show that he has a he he is tolerant, and he is、um, rational, and he has.、Uh, Passion and feeling for Tibetan. For this article,、uh, I think、uh, he is really、uh, the true、um, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize.、Mm-hmm. And given the Chinese government's stance on the Dalai Lama in Tibet. I can only imagine that statement at the end of his piece on the American elections did not win him any new friends、no. <laughs> in the Chinese government. No, he he, he not only、uh, from the authority, but he will be uh, uh, he he will not win any ad,、uh, lots of admirers among the Chinese people. You know, lots of the Chinese are very very nationalistic and very.、Uh, Uh, I I I I have to say misleading patriotism. So, yeah, you are right. Tianqin Yao of the Independent Chinese Pen Center. Thank you so much for spending this time with us and helping us to understand and get to know Liu Xiaobo so much better. Thank you very much, Paul. You'll find links to longer versions of all of our interviews, along with other links, including videos of interviews with Liu Xiaobo and other information on today's program at our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003. Order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast or our newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. And this month, consider helping with our raffle of a second autographed peace guitar. This one signed by John Prine, Steve Earle, Patty Griffin, Robert Cray, Brandy Carlile, the Indigo Girls, and many other stars. Details at peacetalksradio.com. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter or search for us on Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, Sixth Man Productions, presenters of music cruises like the singer-songwriter Kayamo Cruz. Online at kayamo.com, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Alman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music